Connecting life and faith. This is Connections. Welcome to Connections. I'm Colleen Hood with Mike Tom. Just a heads up to our listeners, today's conversation does deal with pregnancy and infant loss and may be difficult for some of you to listen to. My first pregnancy uh, did result in a live baby, but it was full of... um, difficulty and a couple situations that were potentially life-threatening for both me and my baby. And so when uh, when my baby lived, I sort of recognized all that I could have lost had she died, um, like during her threatened miscarriage at eight weeks. Little did she know she'd go on to have five miscarriages after that, become a foster mother as well as an adoptive parent. Today, Rachel is the founder of Brave Mamas, which is an online community offering support to the pregnancy and infant loss community. She's also a speaker as well as the author of a new book titled Unexpected. Today on Connections, she shares her story with us in hopes of helping others who have gone through this same difficult journey. Rachel, we want to learn about you. Tell us about your story and why you have this book on Unexpected. Well, um, my first pregnancy uh, did result in a live baby, but it was full of um, difficulty and a couple situations that were potentially life-threatening for both me and my baby. And so when, uh, when my baby lived, I sort of recognized all that I could have lost had she died, um, like during her threatened miscarriage at eight weeks. Um, and so my second pregnancy... I got attached right away. Um, I had sort of given up on the idea of having another baby, given the fact that my other, uh, my first pregnancy was sort of life-threatening. And so when I found out I was pregnant unexpectedly, I just jumped in with both feet. And uh, unfortunately, at seven and a half weeks, my fallopian tube tore and I was rushed into emergency surgery and my uh, OB was able to save my life and she was able to save my fertility, but she was not able to save my baby. And so I was sort of thrust into a grief that I uh, didn't understand, but at the same time, I recognized that I had not just lost a couple weeks of gestation with my baby. I had lost an entire lifetime with somebody I knew that I had already deeply loved. And um, about eight months later, I found myself pregnant again. And this time I received a call from the nurse saying that my pregnancy hormones had dropped and that I would miscarry. And I went to Barnes and Noble just searching for a book that could tell me what to expect because this loss was so different than my first. And I walked away feeling like I hadn't been seen. There were so few resources and none of them really addressed how I could prepare my heart, my mind, and my body for what was to come. And so um, as I was looking at Barnes & Noble that day, I thought, I'm going to write that book one day. And that was about nine years ago. And four miscarriages uh, later, I uh, finally have this book out. When it comes to miscarriages, it's something that we don't like to talk about. It's something, I mean, it's becoming more and more into the spotlight nowadays, and we're we're actually talking about it. And why though? Why up till now are we all so afraid to share that we've been there and we've been in that, in that situation? Well, I think it starts with the concept of don't tell anyone that you're pregnant until you're in the safe zone. Um, And I think the idea of it is possibly wanting to protect people from having to untell people. 
But what it actually does is it sort of shroud, it sort of shrouds um, the first weeks of pregnancy sort of in secrecy and therefore almost in shame. Um, and it denies people support if, as they are one going through all of the hormonal craziness that is um, early pregnancy, but then it also denies them support should a pregnancy um, end in miscarriage or early loss. And I think as we progress later on in pregnancy, people don't want to believe that babies die. It's one of those really uncomfortable situations because it's it's out of the natural order of things. We want to believe that our world is ordered and natural and safe and that the people that we love and the most vulnerable amongst us can be, um, you know, can be safe. And, and we want to trust that process. And so anything that goes against that, which would be, you know, early losses or even, you know, stillbirth or infant death, those are all really hard things because we recognize the value, um, you know, sometimes, I mean, sometimes, sometimes people don't recognize the value of unborn life, but, um, but I think it's important that we talk about because it is so common one in four pregnancies ends in loss. And so it's, I think it's a good thing that our society is starting to talk about it more and starting to normalize it and then offer the kinds of support that people need and deserve going through a loss. Uh, my wife and I've been through a similar journey. We had uh, five miscarriages before we had children eventually. But uh, after the first one, I believe it was around eight weeks when my wife experienced the miscarriage. And one of the comments we heard from people sometimes trying to comfort us was, well, at least you weren't too far along. Mm-hmm. And that was not comforting for my wife or myself. Mm-hmm. Um, uh yeah, there's a lot of work. Like you mentioned for you, you fell in love with that baby right away with your second pregnancy, right? Can you explain to us, you know, what plays into how an, a person experiences uh, the grief of pregnancy loss? Well, I think that you brought up a good point about the gestation because there is this belief that somehow our love and our attachment and therefore our grief would grow by weeks. And that um, as we are further along in the pregnancy, uh, then, you know, then and only then do we have sort of have the right to grieve. Um, But I would say, though, I even hear uh, from stillbirth parents who've had a full term stillbirth have heard people discount their loss because their baby never took a breath. So it's this it's this discounting that is that is um, it's so unnecessary and so undeserved. but what really plays into grief and into our attachment to our babies, uh, and this is this is has been scientifically proven. You know, people have tried to correlate um, in scientific studies gestation and the amount of grief. And what they found is that it's more the relationship that you share with your baby, um, the attachment that you share, whether there was trauma involved what kind of support system uh, came in place? Was there infertility before or after the loss, which is, you know, a secondary trauma? Um, And just in general, what did this, what did this pregnancy mean to you? How important was this to you? And so uh, all of these things sort of play into our grief and into our loss. And this actually kind of explains why a person can go through multiple losses at the same gestation and experience each of those losses and sort of grieve each of those losses differently. Uh, I know in our situation, we've also experienced miscarriage in my family or with myself. Um, 
there was infertility leading up to that. Then there was the loss. Um, I dealt with it a lot harder than my husband. It was like, come on, just move on. This is mm-hmm. like, it's just over and done with. Do you find that, that the men grieve less than us as the mom? I, I think that it is hard for me to make a broad generalization um, as to whether they grieve less or more, because I think that's a highly nuanced uh, situation between couples. Um, but I will say is that is that men's grief is often discounted and unrecognized. So uh, traditionally, what will happen in support is that uh, say say you're at church or, or you're at work or something, uh, people will typically go up to the man and say, you know, tell me about Rachel. How is Rachel doing? Um, and they'll completely sort of circumvent the fact that the man is, has also lost a child and he is also grieving. And so in that way, his loss is often disenfranchised, um, just in society. And it's sort of, he also sort of may experience more ambiguous loss because he did not have that visceral connection, that physical bodily connection to that baby. And so, um, he may feel like he was waiting for that bonding to happen. Um, and, and then it, and then it may not have. And so that can cause a more ambiguous loss. And what studies have also found is that, um, men tend to grieve differently. There's a book called grieving beyond gender and explains that there's two different grieving styles. Um, and if, if one were on each side of the spectrum, um, we all fa- sort of fall into this continuum. So, uh, instrumental grief is one kind of uh, one style of grief and intuitive is the other, uh, women tend toward intuitive grief. And that is more trying to label our emotions, trying to connect with other people around our feelings. This is more what traditional grief support looks like, such as sitting around in therapy or in a group support session, talking about how we feel and what we went through. Instrumental grief, on the other hand, is more, how do I think about this loss versus how do I feel about this loss? And it it drives to sort of do something with your body rather than talk about something. So in some ways, they sort of convert their tears into sweat. And so, like I said, all of us fall on a continuum. So there's there's pieces of, of this in each of us. Um, but what's interesting is that men's grief style traditionally and sort of, you know, if I, if I were to generalize is often discounted and then people just don't see it as real grief because it's not talking about emotions and sitting around in support groups. I'll say from my own experience, like, uh, especially with the first baby, I was super excited. My wife's seven years younger than me. So I was waiting forever to start a family, right? Because she was in school still in university and finishing and stuff. And and I was so excited. And then when we did lose the baby, I didn't have time to grieve. Uh, she was going through a lot, not only emotionally, but physically through that. Uh, so I had to care for her. I was pastoring a church. Uh, there was no time off for grief, right? But at the loss of a pregnancy and uh, yeah, I was very sad and grieving, but kind of quietly and in, in my own way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I 
I've heard from a lot of people in my focus group that that was a very, you know, a very common experience for men. They sort of carried this feeling of I've got to one support and protect my wife and allow her the ability to fall apart. Sort of, I have to keep things going and bills paid and um, I've still got to show up to work and do the thing so that she has the space she needs to grieve. And so in many ways, their grief was like sort of tucked into the nooks and crannies of their day. Maybe they might cry on the way to work and then pull it together for work. Um, Or they may delay their grief by months and months and months until their wife has started to sort of come out of her shell a little bit more. And then that sort of gives him permission to start to fall apart. You you already touched on this kind of, but I mentioned I was pastoring during that time. One of the things we decided is trying to, you know, show authenticity and encourage that from others within the churches. Well, we'll be open with our journey. And so it's very open about our losses. And it really surprised me how after sharing in church about our losses, how many people came forward mm-hmm. who shared their losses. We had no idea as a church community, they'd been through loss. And I even had one woman share, this would have been in the seventies. She had a pregnancy loss and she didn't even tell her own husband about it. Wow. And they just, yeah, they grieved alone and in solitude. And that just broke my heart that mm-hmm. they wouldn't allow their church community to surround them with care. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That happens so often. And I think, you know, t- mentioning people who are, uh, who had, who had experienced the loss in the seventies, uh, as we are talking about pregnancy loss more in society, what's interesting is that people who have had losses, um, you know, they're, they may be older, they may be, um, you know, well past fertility, their fertility years. And they're just now starting to get that permission to grieve. Like that grief is still there. That experience is still there with them. And they're finally starting to feel like they can begin to talk about it. But I think, like you said, it begins with um, someone, it often begins with someone else sharing and being honest and being vulnerable about their own experiences. Now, what about the person that may have you know, just gone through miscarriage now, having to go back into the world. I know for me um, in my workplace at the time, um, they told my colleagues that I had the flu. So it was this constant mm-hmm. question of, oh, you're feeling better. And then you have to share your story over and over again. And that trigger that those triggers are are not great. Um, what are some ways that we can handle those situations um, when we're, we're, when we're put in a place like that, where it triggers some emotions that we may have even later on down the road that we may have forgotten that we, we still feel. Well, first I would say um, if you can, especially if there's a pattern that develops. So for you going to work and getting that question, that was a pattern that developed um, pre-decide some responses that you feel comfortable with. So um, this could be even like the answer to the question, how many children do you have? And so maybe you come up with two options. One, where you're feeling like you're in a safe place and you're like, I want to be able to to share with this person. So maybe you come up with a response that feels safe. Um, And then maybe you come up with a response for somebody that you don't want to just get into (laughs) with them. Like maybe somebody has asked you at the grocery store, um, And you just don't want to talk about it with them. Um, Maybe you come up with an answer to that. So for me, that was, I have three children at home because I had three children at home, but I also had five babies in heaven and a foster son that I raised and let go of. And so to me, that was my way of not discounting who they were or their presence in my life and being very real, like 
this is how many kids I have. So that pre-deciding can be really helpful and it gives you some measure of control back um, in triggering situations. Um, I I kind of use the uh, analogy stop, drop, and roll. Remember, did they teach you all that like in in uh, elementary school, like if you catch on fire, you need to stop, drop, and roll. Um, I sort of think of this as the same way that we can treat triggers. Um, so stop would be avoiding going into a situation um, if you feel like it's not going to be a good situation for you. So this may be uh, declining a baby uh, shower invitation um, or, you know, not going to that dinner where you, where you know you're in a bad grief space, something like that. So just avoid the trigger if you would like to, if you need to. Um, if you are in the trigger uh, and you need to drop, ground yourself, use some grounding techniques like breathing, um, having some breathing exercises, or um, my friend taught me this recently, hold, hold your hands on each arm and then just pat. And that engages both sides of your brains and helps tamper down um, a trauma response. So if you can, you can learn some simple grounding techniques that you could just sort of employ in the moment to help tamper down the, the triggering response that you have. And then roll would be have an exit strategy. So if you're with your partner, maybe you guys come up with a code word of suddenly I'm having intense grief and I need to leave this space. So maybe it's simple. Um, someone else just told me their grief, their code word was, oh no, the dog got out. We better get home. It's <laughs> something like that. <laughs> So um, find a way to gracefully exit a situation that, that uh, you know, if, if you need to, and, and maybe practice some of those responses so they become second nature to you. And that kind of takes the deer in the headlights feeling out of some of those uh, experiences and interactions. When we were going through our journey, the church I was pastoring was also going through a baby boom at the time. Uh, my wife would lead worship often. It, it was so hard for her to get up on that stage and mm-hmm. sing and see those babies. I remember there was one week too, she had lost a baby. And then a few hours later that day, I was in the hospital room with a newborn blessing that baby. Uh, my faith, as heartbroken as I was, I found at the same time, it really strengthened my faith in ways. Uh, I'm wondering what happened to your faith during the journey? I might. I wouldn't say my wife's faith was so strengthened through the journey, but mine was. Mm -hmm. Well, I think, you know, just addressing what your wife went through for women, there's uh, in the church, there can be such a um, correlation between God's blessing and our fertility. Mm -hmm. And also there's just a very family oriented, you know, vibe in the church. And so there's a lot of attention put on pregnancy and um, babies and families and large families. And so as someone going through loss and infertility, church can actually be one of the more triggering places to go, even though we want it to be a place of support. Um, I know at least in, in my situation, I found it to be almost too hard to go to. I did go, but at the same time, my focus was not on God. It was just trying to get through the service without, you know, leaving in tears. So for my faith, I found that, um, when I hoped, begged and pleaded for my baby, um, to live with my first pregnancy. And, uh, I felt like God came through, provided the miracle and she lived. And then in my second pregnancy, I hoped, begged and pleaded for God to make my, allow my baby to live. And then she didn't. Um, I, I felt like, um, 
sort of this transactional faith that I had in God um, fell apart. And I, and I would never have said I had a transactional faith in God at the time. I mean, never. But when I realized that like things did not happen the way that I thought that they would, um, I was deep, I felt deeply betrayed and deeply hurt. And so it started to sort of cause my faith to fall apart a little bit, just, just a bit at a time. And and with each new loss, it was just sort of like chip, chip, chip on the block of faith. Um, and I didn't want to admit that to anyone. Truly. I didn't not even to myself at times, but what brought me some comfort and also brought me some validity and wrestling with my faith was actually the book of Job. Um, which I know sounds cliche because when we talk about suffering, that is the first sort of biblical figure we go to because um, we, we look at Job and say, you know, in the first two chapters, okay, he said, you know, the Lord has given, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And for um, as Christians who like sort of an easy faith to wrap up in a bow, we're like, okay, so now we know why Job um, suffered and we know the correct response to suffering because here's this, this wonderful faith hero that did it right. And what we forget is that there's actually 42 chapters in the book of Job. And so if all we needed to learn from Job was in chapter two, why include 42 chapters? And that middle section really is about, you know, Job does charge God with wrongdoing and Job does wrestle deeply with his faith and faith. And he does that in the context of these friendships that these friends are so um, determined to show Job the light and, and, and defend God to him. And they're so like they have all the answers that they're not even willing to wrestle with any of the questions, but Job is just deeply entrenched in the wrestling and the questions. And at the end of it, while God is direct, I mean, he's not coddling Job here, but at the same time, what he does is he reveals more of who he is to Job. And he says, look, this is who I am. This is what I do. And at the end of it, Job is like, you know, I'd heard of you before. But it's like, but he's like, now I, now I know you, now I've experienced you. And strangely enough, like that was enough for Job, for him to just, he didn't even have to question why anymore. And that was before any of his fortunes had been restored or he had more kids in sort of, um, like in, in opposition to that, God had his harshest, harshest words for the people who were so full of answers that they they never took the time to wrestle with their faith or, or with Job's faith or with this idea of suffering in the light of faith. And so um, for me, I saw the book of Job, especially that, you know, that section where God like reserved that amount of space in the Bible for wrestling. I saw it as, as God literally holding space for me and for others to wrestle with our faith when we are suffering. Would you say eventually your faith was able to strengthen at the end of this once you were able to see through all of that? I would say that my faith looks very different than it did before. And I'm not 100% sure if I would say strengthened is, is the word that I would use. But I would say it's far more nuanced and far more personal and far um, far more sort of... Uh, real to who, to who I am. And 
um, in many ways, it allowed me to lose the parts of my faith that were inauthentic um, Mm -hmm. and that were there for show for other people. So I I don't know if that, I don't know if that that answers your question. No, that definitely makes sense. Um, now what about parents, um, after you've lost a baby, the, there is sometimes that, you know, want to try again. I know my sister-in-law, she had a miscarriage, then she did have a baby. He was born prematurely. She almost died. Baby almost died. Everybody ended up coming out of that healthy. Then uh, a few months back, she tried again and again, called us crying in tears. Why is this happening to me? again and now has gotten rid of everything all of her baby stuff and that's the end of it but there are other options out there tell us a little bit about alternate routes that people can take if you know they're not able to birth that child themselves well there is you know adoption and then and I and am an adoptive parent and I did adopt um my daughter in the midst of my secondary infertility experience and my recurrent pregnancy loss. Um, What I will say is um, if you choose to go through adoption, one, recognize that it is a different process. And so there's going to be a level of grief involved um, because you are not, you are not having that uh, visceral connection with the baby and also people around you treat you differently, um, and celebrate that baby differently. I remember just having my daughter move in with us and, um, I went to someone else's baby shower and there was at church. I mean, everyone knew me very well, but there was no attention at all given to the fact that I had a brand new baby in my arms. Um, while everyone was celebrating this other mom and I'm not to say that the attention should have been on me. Um, but that was just sort of the, the general rule. There were no, there was no celebration. The only celebration that there was for her was the one that I personally planned, um, for our adoption. And so, um, so there's, there's sort of a a different experience and it can be a, a experience where you need to grieve the, the loss of your own fertility and, and having that choice taken from you. Um, and then also recognize that truly the bond that you can have with an adoptive child can be absolutely just as strong as uh, a bond that you have with a biological child. And while the, while the journey looks different, it doesn't necessarily look less, uh, in, in many, many ways. So, um, so there, there are options. One thing I would sort of warn people or, or my big caveat really is if you are going to adopt, it's really important that you understand that every child who comes into adoption is traumatized. And that, that is, the same, whether, you know, that child is from another country um, and they've been in an orphanage for a long time, or if that child came directly from another woman's womb uh, right into your arms and, um, you know, and that, that baby maybe never met their mother outside of birth and outside of that pregnancy, but they are absolutely just as traumatized because this is not how God created us to, to live as families. You know, that wasn't a part of the original design. That's not a part of our instinct and our, um, just the way that we are designed to create bonds with other people. And so it's, 
it's something that you need to realize that if you're going into adoption, do it so that you are parenting a child and a child has has a home and that you are, you are providing for a child um, and less to fulfill your own need to parent, if that makes sense. Um, because it's, that child is already traumatized, putting your own needs on top of a child um, is a lot to ask of them, if that makes sense. So, so check to make sure that you can raise a traumatized child, make sure you're trauma informed, and then also um, make sure that your heart's desire is to, to be that safe place. Um, and then at the, at the end of all of that, I will say adoption, adoption is, is beautiful and it is a gift and it can be incredibly redemptive for all people involved. So it, it can be a beautiful way to grow a family as well. I think we could talk to you for hours about this is such a big and important subject. You have such good things to say Uh, for those that want to continue the discussion or learn more from you. How can we find you and uh, stay up to date with everything that you're up to? You can find me on Facebook at uh, Rachel Lewis, author and speaker, or on Instagram at rachel.thelewisnote. Um, I do run a support group called Brave Mamas on Facebook for any mother who is grieving a child. Um, and then you could also find out more um, about the book and get a free chapter at unexpectingbook.com. Nice. And if people want a copy of Unexpecting, I expect you can find it pretty much everywhere, right? (laughs) Yes. Everywhere books are sold and online. Thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate it. Thank you. It was my pleasure to be here. And thank you so much for listening today. Remember, if you want to listen to this full conversation or any of the other conversations that we've had on Connections, you can do that by checking out our podcast, Connections with Mike Tom and Colleen Hood. You can find that at podcastville.ca or wherever else you get your favorite podcast from. Don't forget to subscribe. We'll talk to you again on Connections.